This is Tommy's Outdoors 136. You know, like a lot of content creators, they go like, oh, I don't talk about politics. I don't talk about politics. And you got to understand that because talking about the politics often generates a lot of unnecessarily heated conversations, especially if it's a politics that is not related to the particular subject. Uh, but then there are people who say like, oh, you know, this is exactly the problem. This is why so many things are going wrong in politics, because you don't talk about it and a lot of stuff uh, remains unchecked. Um, I'm kind of leaning more towards not talking about the politics when it's not necessarily, when it's not related to what we talk here on the podcast. But then again, when you talk about conservation, nature restoration, or rewilding, or marine protected areas, there's just no way to not talk about politics, because all those subjects uh, based on land management policies, and land management policies is politics. So today we're going to drive right into the EU politics of nature restoration and our guest is Ariel Brunner. Ariel is a uh, head of EU policy at the environmental NGO BirdLife International and you may think this is all this is all about birds and anyone who followed Ariel on uh, his appearances on the various panels and conferences knows that Ariel's, Ariel deals with much more than just birds. He, he deals with all issues related to nature restoration. And uh, I understand that some things you're going to hear in this podcast might upset some of you, and I welcome comments and I welcome feedback. And the best way to leave your comments is basically leave the comment under the YouTube video. Yes, this podcast, like all the other episodes of Tommy's Outdoors podcast, are on YouTube. So leaving comments on YouTube, it's a great way of leaving your feedback. And if you want to leave the feedback more, you know, straight to me, not necessarily in a public forum, you can reply to one of the emails from my newsletter. And speaking about newsletter, if you haven't subscribed to Tommy's Outdoors newsletter, you definitely should do that. The link is in the description of the show, or you can just go to newsletter.tommysoutdoors.com, subscribe to the newsletter, you will get notified about all the uh, podcast episodes and all the other stuff that's going on, going on in Tommy's Outdoors. But also, you can just hit reply to any of those emails and you will be sending an email directly to my inbox and I will reply to every single one of those, okay? So if you want to leave the comment or leave the feedback directly to me, uh, just reply to one of the newsletter emails and if you want to uh, maybe start a public conversation, the best way to do that is in YouTube comments, okay? So uh, that's it for this introduction, folks. And now, without any further delay, we're going to talk with Ariel Brunner about the politics, the EU politics of nature restoration. Ariel, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking time from your busy schedule to be here with us, uh, talking about nature restoration and biodiversity. Hello. We're going to start with a, like a short introduction, just to lay out the background for our listeners. You are the head of EU policy at the environmental NGO BirdLife International. So people might think like, oh, it's a, you know about birds. 
But then when anyone pays attention to what you do, the panels that you take part of, your your talks, your presentations, you are not only about birds, you about biodiversity and nature restoration in general. So what is your job? What, what is what you're doing? Well, I coordinate uh, the policy work for uh, bird life in the European Central Asia region. Uh, and that means essentially helping our national organizations try to influence governments about legislation and policy and implementation of legislation for the conservation of birds and biodiversity in general. Uh, increasingly, we live in a world where uh, you find nature where we human allows it to be. So the rules that govern our human society are de facto today the rules that govern the existence of nature. Yeah. You, you're, in other words, you walk the corridors in Brussels fighting for biodiversity and you, and you, you, can, you can say that we are we are the lobbyists of nature we live in a society where anyone that sells anything has lobbyists to defend their interests the living world cannot speak for itself so it needs someone to speak for it absolutely absolutely so this is well put um ariel so we're going to talk about uh, europe in general and, and what's going on in, in with europe so um, before we jump into the more uh, specific subjects, in general, 10,000 feet view, how is the biodiversity and nature doing in Europe? Because on the one hand, you hear those great success stories, the large carnivores are coming back, there are wolves living in every country in Europe, uh, other than the ones that are on the island, unfortunately, or fortunately, some would argue. Then you hear uh, other stories about, uh, you know, salmon returns and curlew in Ireland, I think is as good as done, and Montagu's Harrier, that's just the recent news. You even tweeted about the Siberian crane, like a single bird that is returning for 13 years and just like no other birds to breed with. So, and I understand that there are good and bad, but overall Europe, how Europe is doing, how biodiversity in Europe is doing. So overall, the picture is grim and the science is, is very conclusive. If you look at, uh, you know, our own uh, publications like the State of the World Bird or the European Red List, um, we have, uh, yeah, uh, one every five species of birds, uh, on the continent is, uh, is threatened or near threatened and the third are declining. Um, so yes, some species are recovering and other species are going down, but the big picture is still that we have a massive loss of biodiversity. Um, and it's even worse when you move to other taxa. Um, you know, there is some really shocking evidence coming up out every time people look at insects, um, uh, at plants, um, uh, almost all the, 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 the animals that live in freshwater habitats are, are in terrible shape. Um, so we are clearly losing a lot more than we are gaining. That's, that's very clear. Um, now you are right that we've had some spectacular, um, wildlife comebacks. We've just participated to a recent report that has tracked some of those uh, success stories. But uh, if you look at it up close, um, there is a big common denominator to almost all the, the success stories, which is that they tend to be uh, large-bodied, slow-moving, slow-breeding, 
animals of the type that got historically massacred by hunting or persecution, uh, call it what, what you may. So clearly, uh, you know, legislation like the Birds and Habitats Directive, um, much better levels of uh, management of hunting across the continent, massive uh, improvement in enforcement, decline in, in uh, illegal persecution, the creation of protected areas like the Natura 2000 network, protection of colonies, all of this has had huge benefits for that sort of species that were vulnerable to that sort of problem. And indeed, if you look, most raptors in Europe, herons, cranes, um, swans, uh, geese, flamingos, they've all been coming back. So from that point of view, uh, you know, the work we've been doing as conservationists in the last 40 years uh, has been giving fantastic results. And you are totally right. Uh, you know, we have now beavers inside Brussels. Um, who, who would have thought that possible, uh, you know, uh, a couple of decades uh, back? But while we have been bringing back those species uh, that were hammered by direct persecution, we have been losing massively the habitat specialists. Um, we are degrading most habitats. Uh, the worst situation is with the farmed habitats, grasslands and, uh, and, and farmed landscapes, where species are just melting away, you know, anything from uh, turtle doves to lapwings, to culios you've mentioned, and so on, are in, are in terrible shape. Um, but uh, we are also hammering the last old growth or ancient forests left in Europe um, with ever more in, uh, industrialized logging. Uh, the pressure of uh, fishing at sea is huge and we are losing a lot of seabirds to mainly to bycatch. Um, and, and to loss of their uh, of their uh, food resources, uh, we have destroyed most of the rivers and most of the wetlands on the continent. Uh, so the habitat degradation uh, again, certain habitats in certain peoples are in certain places are being restored, but the big picture is still of massive habitat loss. Um, and then on top of it, we now have climate change that is starting to, um, uh, to kick in big time. And if you look at, um, the second European bird atlas, uh, that, you know, again, we've been, uh, part of that, uh, effort came out fairly recently. Uh, and you have those fascinating maps that track the shifting of distributions, uh, over the last couple of decades. And you can see that a lot of the mountain specialists and of the Arctic specialists are already uh, seeing their um, distribution range shrinking because they are being pushed up the mountains or, or into the into the Arctic Ocean. Um, so, yeah, there are some very, very worrying th th trends. And um, so, yeah, it's a mixed bag. But there are some underlying trends that are very obvious. Yeah, and you already mentioned uh, you already mentioned farming and marine, and uh, this is this is these are all the areas with, where where I would like to uh, dive a little bit deeper. And so let's go with farming first. And 
is that true? You partially you partially said that already, but I just want to tease it out. Is it true that farming is the biggest threat to biodiversity? Because obviously, when it comes to habitat, but then you have uh, travel, you have like industry, chemical industry, whatever. So people would think that why farming is is labeled so often as the biggest threat. So the fact that farming is the biggest threat to biodiversity globally and at continental level and in most countries is a well-established scientific fact and it comes out from one study after the other. Uh, the reason for it is actually quite simple. It's because we use, well, in Europe, we use about half the land for farming. Uh, and if that sector impacts half the land, well, that's the size of impacts that it has on the ecosystem. Um, obviously, you have, uh, you know, uh, activities that can be a lot more devastating locally, but if they impact only a few hectares, they are not going to have a massive impact in the, in the greater scheme of things. Agriculture and forestry are the way we use most of the land. Uh, you know, uh, urbanization is obviously very bad for biodiversity, broadly, broadly speaking, but in most countries, you use less than 10% of the land for, um, uh, for housing and, and infrastructure. Um, it's not just that, it's also that agriculture uses uh, the vast majority of water uh, particularly the water that gets consumed, because we use water for things like cooling power plants, but in, you put it back in the river, maybe too hot, but but it doesn't disappear. Ag agriculture through irrigation is actually taking water and pumping it into the atmosphere. Um, uh, so most of the problems for wetlands come actually from agriculture, runoff, uh, nitrogen uh, pollution is one of the major sources of loss of biodiversity in large parts of Europe. And nitrogen comes essentially from, uh, uh, from farming. And then, of course, the use of pesticides is uh, by far the biggest um, uh, source of uh, chemical pollution out there. Um, again, because those are chemicals that do not kind of escape some use incidentally. They are on purpose dumped over <laughs> huge areas of land. And they are chemicals that have been designed to kill living things. I mean, we sometimes do horrible mess with chemicals that we have designed to, you know, for their pretty colors or for their coating qualities. But those are chemicals that are actually uh, designed uh, in order to kill forms of life and that's exactly what they do so um so i don't think there is anything kind of sinister about the fact that and and that's unfortunately there is often a very uh you know emotional reaction to it from uh, farming from people in in farming communities as if you know kind of they are being blamed no it's just that you know human existence is based primarily on the production of uh, food and other things. We can have discussion about that. Um, but that's the main use that we make of the planet. And that's where the, the biggest problem comes from. Now, if you zoom in, uh, uh, it's very clear what is happening in farming. Um, in in Europe, but also globally, we have been uh, both expanding farming, 
and intensifying it relentlessly. So we are producing more and more following a philosophy of high input, high output, and inherently based on simplifying the ecosystem. So what you would find in a lot of places in Europe is that we have moved from complex um, landscapes where we were growing many different types of crops, many varieties of crops in spatially complicated ways and often with a lot of remnant native vegetation to simplified landscapes where there is very little um, uh, natural vegetation left and where there is very often just very few crops, sometimes only one crop. And it it doesn't require, you know, to be an ecologist to understand that when you lose diversity, you lose diversity. You know, biodiversity is called biodiversity because it is based on the interaction between complex form of life um, and uh, different species need different resources and they need different resources at different times of the year. When you end up with a monoculture, you typically have a huge amount of resources for very few species that then typically become pests and you don't offer anything to everything else. And unfortunately, modern agriculture has been turning on itself because agriculture today is a main uh, cause of loss of soil fertility and even just loss of soil. Uh, It's massively depleting water resources and it's massively depleting biodiversity. And those are all things that agriculture actually depends on. And then farmers have been pushed into uh, a downward spiral where uh, because of the loss of biodiversity and the loss of soil fertility, their crops are more vulnerable to um, uh, pests and then they become dependent on, on pesticides and those pesticides further erode the natural pest control and then you need to keep using more pesticides and more toxic pesticides. Something similar is happening with uh, with um, fertilizer. The more fertilizer you use, the more you kill the soil. The more you kill the soil, the less effective the soil becomes in uh, in giving nutrition to the plants, and the more artificial fertilizer you need uh, you need to use. Um, and the same thing is happening. And all of those things are interacting with each other. You lose soil organic matter, so. Uh, you send carbon into the atmosphere, which make climate change worse, but also your soil cannot hold water anymore. The less water it can hold, the more irrigation you need to give. The more irrigation you give, the more you get problems with salinization. So, um, and a lot of uh, farmers have been pushed down a blind, blind alley where they need to keep running to stay where they are. And uh, they need to keep buying more and more inputs, which means that they sink into deeper into debt. And then they need to max out short-term production in order to pay the debt, which leads to even more degradation. And if you look at the rate at which we've been losing farmers in most of Europe, it's very similar to the rate in which we've been using farmland birds. So it's not that we've been wiping out nature, but the farmers have been doing great out of it. A few farmers have been doing great, a few industries have been doing great, but the majority of farmers are on this treadmill where eventually they trip over and go bust, and then they get bought over by their neighbors who become even bigger until they trip over and get 
consolidated again. So um, there is a real problem there because uh, we are going sooner or later to face very, very serious problems in, in feeding ourselves. And meanwhile, we are uh, losing beautiful species and also killing a lot of people. If you look at, uh, you know, the amount of people that die in Europe from things like air pollution, where, you know, we are all deeply aware of the part of air pollution that comes from cars in the cities, most people do not realize that a huge part of air pollution comes from uh, mainly the livestock sector uh, in the countryside. Huh. It's a perfect storm almost, what you, what you, what you describe, Ariel. Um, help me reconcile this thing. And you said that those farmers are being pushed into this, this treadmill um, because, you know, like when I talk with farmers or I even talk with scientists who are doing various projects, um, the, the overwhelmingly farmers are described as passionate about nature, loving nature, loving land, very helpful in conservation projects, um, very aware of the dangers that you mentioned of the climate change and so on and so forth. So sometimes I feel like it's, it's like, okay, how is this is happening? What is it? So either those farmers are so concerned about that or so how this is happen, happening that then farming is this monster that is eating the planet, like some people say, while it consists with from individuals who are seeing the changes that happen, seeing the decline in birds, seeing the decline in insects, all these things are concerned about that. So how, how did that happen? How do you reconcile well, that? So I must say that the first thing is to stop talking about farmers as if they were this amorphous monolite. You know, there are good farmers and lousy farmers. There are nice farmers and really unpleasant farmers. And, you know, and there are farmers that are making lots of money and there are farmers who go bust. So, you know, it's a very diverse set of communities and, uh, and they are, and, and we too often have this kind of caricature where, you know, the farmers do this or that. There is not, no such thing. But when you start unpacking it, um, you do have <clears throat> some systemic problems. So a lot of farmers are trapped in a product production system that has gone wrong and they are trapped in it because they have a certain machinery to grow a certain crop. They have a market that demands that kind of crop. Um, they, they have a mortgage to pay. Uh, they might have, uh, you know, their mortgage might have been given on the basis of a business plan that, uh, you know, the bank only accept if it is a standardized one. So even when people understand that they need to change, the barriers to change can be very big. Uh, it's very easy for me to say, oh, you know, it's so obvious that you should be doing crop rotation. But, you know, if you've been doing monoculture for a generation and you only have the machinery to do that crop and you only have a market for that crop and you only, maybe also only know how to grow that crop, uh, diversifying can be really, really complicated. Um, so there are, uh, there are lock-ins that are just based on the fact that once you've gone down a certain road, if you have destroyed your soil fertility, uh, you cannot 
overnight go organic or move to agroecology because your soil is not fertile and the moment you stop irrigating and fertilizing it, it doesn't grow anything. So changing uh, can be really complicated, particularly if you don't receive uh, help. There are lock-ins that are imposed by the state. I mean, current farm policies are mostly pushing farmers to keep doing the damage rather than, I mean, for all the discussions about environmental payments and so on. You know, we've, we do a lot of, um, uh, work analyzing, uh, you know, at the moment, for example, the new uh, CAP uh, plans. And in most countries, for every euro that is spent on helping farmers move to more ecologically benign practices, there are several euros that are um, uh, given to farmers to just keep doing what they are doing or even to actively destroy nature. So if you are being paid to destroy, well, you will destroy. Um then uh, there are uh, you know, cultural barriers, um, and uh, let's be honest about it, the changes that we need um, in farming are as far-reaching as the changes that we need in every other sector in society if we want to survive the next uh, few decades. And some things are uh, very, very entrenched. So, uh, for example... Uh, seeing um, biodiversity or at least things like insects and weeds as an enemy to be uh, defeated rather than as a vital component in the agroecosystem to be managed and lived along with, uh, those are things that people have been taught in agronomy classes and in universities and uh, and people have been telling it to each other and and changing the perspective is uh, is 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 difficult yeah i heard that phrase that 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 land needs to be beaten into submission as <laughs> i mean the whole the whole um principle of modern farming at least since the 50s i mean we can discuss it comes from way uh, before that has been about essentially removing the ecosystem and replacing it with a production system that is very standardized. So you grow maize or wheat, and typically one uh, variety that you grow all around the country. And then if it's too dry, you irrigate. If it's too uh, wet, you drain. If there is certain nutrients missing, you add the nutrients. If there is a pest, you shoot it down with uh, with pesticide. And you end up with, uh, you know, you, you can see today, you look at an arable uh, field anywhere in Europe, and they tend to all look the same. Um which is crazy because different places have different climates and different soils and different pests and different pest control possibilities and so on. But we have been systematically uh, homogenizing everything because it allowed for scale and for mechanization and for you know, uh, the, the, all sorts of uh, good reasons. But we have taken it way too far and now we need to, uh, to step down from it. Now, in all of that, we also need to be honest about the fact that greed exists ah. within farming like it exists in any other uh, sector. 
Um, and you cannot always just blame the system and the government and the economics. I mean, um, when people go out in the middle of the night to plow up a, a protected grassland <laughs> to convert it to maize cultivation, they know what they are doing and nobody is forcing them to do it, right? There might be some market incentives and disincentives that are not the right ones, but you can also not take away the, the individual responsibilities. Uh, so I think we also need to not infantilize um, whole segments of society by kind of assuming that they they have no agency and no control over what, what they do and that they are just kind of um, passive victims of, of the system. And farmers are not. I mean, all around Europe, there is a huge... Um, uh, movement of innovation in farming. Uh, you know, we work in almost every European country with fantastic farmers who are bringing back biodiversity in all sorts of creative ways. The problem is that uh, the politics are captured by the dominant farming unions who, in most cases, do not work for the interest of the majority of farmers, but they honestly work for the profiteers who are making a lot of money out of the current disaster. Huh. Yeah, uh, it's interesting that you said about the uh, equipment and being locked in their equipment. Um, I don't remember what species of bird was it, but I, I was talking with the author of the book about British birds that don't remember the species now, but they, they are declined because the hedges are not high enough and the hedges are not high enough because John Deere or some company is making machinery to maintain hedges on this size to fit to the tractor and that's it. And yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, the way that he hedges are butchered all around Europe is one of those uh, really low-hanging fruit because, you know, reducing your hedge to a sterile box every year costs time and money uh, and, and diesel, and it serves no real purpose. It's really a cultural thing, and in most cases is linked to kind of misconceptions about tidiness, tidiness. and... And, and, and people being afraid that the neighbor will think I'm a slacker if my hedgerow goes wild and, and so on. So there are, you know, there are problems that are really, really difficult to, uh, to solve. There are problems that are really just about, you know, giving nature a little bit of a break. Yeah, but I think you would agree that farming and farmers are also a key to addressing this this massive mess, right? Abs absolutely, because you know, farmers are the people who manage half the land in Europe, and that land will be alive or dead to the extent that the people managing it want it to be. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's almost tautological that uh, you know, conservation on land depends on the people that live on the land. So, um, but, but that's true, uh, it's true about f farmers managing the land that they own or that they farm, and it's true about rural communities that, uh, that live where the biodiversity is, um, you know, all over the world where you see animals, it's because people tolerate them, and when people don't tolerate them, you don't see them. I mean, uh, you, you can see the natural experiments around Europe. You go to 
um, you know, you go to India and you have, uh, you know, uh, monkeys and monitor lizards and, uh, and so on inside the cities. You go to Latin America and under even uh, and around even the smallest village, there is a kind of dead zone where you don't see anything bigger than this because everything gets shot. Um, so the relationship, the emotional relationship between people and nature is increasingly what um, determines the sort of nature that 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 you would find um, because just human presence has become so overbearing. There are so many of us and we have such a, a, an invasive technology that at this point, um, uh, you know, if you look at distribution of birds, uh, they are uh, increasingly determined not so much by the climate and, and, the, and the geomorphology, but by people's tolerance of them or yeah. their uh, ability to live in in human modified landscapes yeah yeah that's true we have a most i think like all the wildlife we have is because we decided we we want it and we allow it to be there listen Ari, so i have a question uh, along the lines like you obviously working and you're talking with the farmers you're talking with those organizations and and you're um, trying to find the, the solutions to these things and, and talk reason. And I am wondering, do you see, and you, you kind of alluded to that already, that there is often this, this picture painted of like a bad farmer and this anti-farming sentiment and a lot of an environmental NGOs are um, maybe not environmental NGOs themselves, but people who are their supporters they're, they're 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 paying money to support those ngos those ngos giving okay factual information like for example oh farming is the biggest threat to biodiversity and then all those people on social media start so called farmer bashing and that creates this adverse relation between environmental NGOs and farming. Do you see that trend and do you see that this is problematic, this is this is harming, like making your job more difficult, that farmers are like, oh, those are these environmental folks. I, 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 I must say that, you know, farming bashing, I think, is, um, uh, is a piece of bad propaganda that has been invented by the people who do not want to have an educated debate about things. So sure, I mean, social media tend to be a chess uh, on almost anything, you know, uh, follow a Twitter thread on whatever, you know, and sooner or later people end up insulting each other and so on. And it's a huge problem in our society. Um, you know, um, we, we've, we are kind of glorified monkeys that have uh, come out of the savannah uh, very, very recently and we don't handle electronic uh, communication very well. It's very clear <laughs> that, you know, when you are talking to someone in, in the pub, somewhere deep inside you have the fear that he will punch you on the nose so you treat him with a certain respect when you are protected by a screen and maybe by a fake uh, uh, name people all of a sudden feel entitled to say and do things that they wouldn't uh, in the real in the real world so that's um, and on that I really do not think that uh, you know environmentalists are any worse than than anyone else there's a lot of bullshit being said by anyone anywhere. 
Um, if you look at the reality, um, you know, uh, I can tell you quite a few stories of environmentalists around Europe um, uh, being threatened, bullied, uh, having uh, their cars burned, being shot at. Um, you know, there's some really, really bad stuff happening there. I am still to come across cases of, you know, environmentalists beating up or, or shooting farmers uh, that have destroyed the habitat or something. So to be honest, I really do not think that there is that there is a story there. Um, you know, but but what yeah. you said about the the social media and all that, surely this has an impact while you're well, having those conversations face to face. I think that, you know, yeah, of course, uh, of course there is, and we in general uh, live in a society, in societies that tend for a variety of reasons now to be more polarized and, and, and so on. Um, and very often the environmental debate get caught in wider kind of culture wars and then people play the, the city versus the countryside. Oh, and yeah. Certain politicians have made whole careers based on it and, um, um, uh, you know, the, 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 a European minister that said that we need to uh, defend the country against uh, the gays, the cyclists and the vegetarians for <laughs> our culture. So, yeah, you know, this kind of axis of evil. And then, you know, uh, when, when I uh, when I say that we have way too many cows, both in the world and in Europe, which is a scientific fact, um, you you get pigeonholed in that axis of evil, and that means that you want to destroy our ancient way of life and so on. So unfortunately, there's a lot of really um, kind of toxic politics around those things, and those toxic politics are really not helping. Um, but again, uh, I think that in many places... Um, uh, you are starting to see the debate happening inside uh, uh, farming communities and in and, and the farm sector because, um, you know, uh, whether it's in Ireland where it's becoming very clear to a lot of people within farming that, uh, you know, the people who are driving them out of business are the intensive dairy industry, not the environmentalists, whether it's in France, where if you look at, um, you know, the demonstration the, 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 the other week, I mean, uh, the, the government uh, paying for building huge kind of giant swimming pools so that the big cereal barons can pump away the groundwater, de facto taking away the water from the other farmers in order to privatize it and being able to use it for themselves. Um, that's an not just an environmentalist against farmers, that's, you know, farmers against farmers. Uh, you look in the Czech Republic where the uh, organization that represents the small farmers has broken uh, with the with the big um, uh, farm union and left uh, COPA, which is the roof organization of the farm lobby at European level, because they are fed up with being represented by people who actually represent a tiny minority at the expense of uh, the majority of people. So, 
uh, I think that those fault lines are are becoming evident, and um, and obviously, uh, you know, the the people who are uh, exploiting the current system try to play on the cultural aspect to kind of go to farming community and say, oh, those are the hippies from the city. They don't understand you. They don't like you. They want to drive you off the land. And, and then de facto, you can marshal people into going against their own interests, uh, which is what the farm lobby quite systematically does. The, the test case for it is in all debates around the common agricultural policy, the one mantra of the farm lobby is always no redistribution of subsidies. They are against any kind of policy change that would redistribute money away from the big beneficiaries to the smaller beneficiaries. Which is really weird. If you are a farm union and you represent farmers, then surely anything that takes money from the top one and a half percent and redistribute it to the others must be something that you would support. But they are always against it. So, uh, there is, um, you know, there are some quite toxic games that are being played there. But that's where, you know, we are making very big efforts to, uh, to reach out and to stay factual and, and to also, uh, be pragmatic about things. So, um, you know, farmers are where they are and they do what they do. In many cases, this needs to change. It needs to change not because we ideologically want it to change, but because if it doesn't change, it will collapse. And then the change will be uh, a lot worse. Um, and we have seen it already in parts of the world where, you know, the, the, it has arrived. You know, you keep winning against the environmentalists who want you to stop pumping water. You keep pumping water until the water runs out and then you go bust. And then instead of changing your production over time, you know, you, you, you just go out of business sometimes with terrible human tragedies. So, we really need to uh, work with uh, with the, the farming sector to uh, enable a change that needs to be very rapid, but ideally as undisruptive uh, and as cooperative uh, as possible. But that's true of farming, but that's true of uh, fishing, it's true of forestry, it's true of transport, of housing, of everything, because that's, again, something that very often, you know, um, every sector thinks that they are being picked upon. You know, we hear it, uh, I mean, we work with many sectors and you always hear it's like, oh, everybody's against us, but what about those other ones? And it's kind of, well, no, it's not that everybody's against you. <laughs> it's like we are telling you the same things we are telling them. Uh, of course, everybody lives in its own bubble. So, um, uh, you know, if you are... Uh, uh, if you are a fisherman, you are very much into the debates about fishing and you know the need to move out of bottom trawling or things like that. You might not have spent five minutes uh, of your life thinking about the changes that we need in the electricity sector or in the cement yeah. production sector or in city design uh, for sure for sure it's an uh one last question like it's kind of related to farming and i would like to know your opinion or maybe you know how 
is the the uh, movement or term called rewilding represented at the level that you work on again it's can be quite polarizing and some people saying yeah that's the best thing ever we need to rewild uh, landscape um, then obviously as you know a lot of farmers uh, think like oh this is you know tainted toxic yeah. term and it only and especially discussions about uh cap was like oh you know now they're gonna pay for land abandonment and so on and so forth yeah what's, yeah. Just, what's uh, your view on that so uh so you know uh, apart for the term which means different things to different people and uh and in different countries and it translates better into some European countries than uh, languages than into others. And we have done quite a lot of work on trying to kind of sort it out and so on. But um, but in essence, um, I mean, we are mainly focused on nature restoration. And it's very clear that we need to restore nature uh, for the sake of nature itself, but also on the sake of our own survival, including the survival of farming. Um, we need to restore nature at multiple scales and we need to get out of this kind of ideological uh, sort of wars. Uh, you know, the reality is that um, you need nature in the field, things like earthworms and skylarks. You need nature around the field the flower margins and the hedgerows, because otherwise you don't get the pollinators, you don't get the pest control. Um, you need nature on the farm, including for the farmer to remain sane. <laughs> you know, um, you need nature in the landscape, uh, the the river uh, belts. I mean, if you you can have you know fantastic organic agroecological farms, if you are going to farm into the river then you will not have a functioning river and you will not have uh, habitat continuity and the crops will get flooded regularly. So, um, and then you also need big chunks of wild nature because there is a whole um, uh, bunch of species that don't really live on a really nice agroecological farm. They only live in real natural habitats um, in certain cases, with no human exploitation, we need old growth forest that is allowed to just be there unmanaged. Um, we need uh, no take zone at sea, including so that fish can become big enough and produce enough eggs so that you can keep fishing outside uh, those no take zones. So we need to understand that we need to bring back nature at multiple scales. This needs to be done together with communities uh, and with landowners and with land managers, which means that we need to create systems of incentives and you know, payments for ecosystem services and so on and so forth. Um, we need to do the right things in the right places. And on that, there are a lot of legitimate debates about, you know, uh, in that specific mountain range, how much of it should be, a, a nature reserve and left to the chamois and the ibexes and how much of it should be extensive grazing with cows and so on and which bits you should fence off from the cows so that um and those should be debates that uh should be informed first of all by good science 
and then by pragmatic cooperation spirit that looks at what's feasible and how do you get the maximum amount of nature and carbon and, and water storage for the minimum loss of food production and minimum cost to the farmer and, and to society. Uh, so that's a bit, let's say, the, 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 the bigger picture. And ideally, you would want to get out of this kind of um, caricaturized um, debates where, uh, you know, uh, it's either you want to kind of drive people off the land to give the land back to the wolves or, uh, you know... <laughs> of course, uh, right? Wolves. Our, uh, our way of life will disappear the moment that the first wolf appears on the horizon. Well, the reality is that, uh, you know, um, you can combine nature and people in at all uh, geographic scale. You can't always combine everything with everything. I mean, there are species that you do not get if you plow the land. There are species that you do not get if you have cows on the land. You have species that you don't get if you shoot uh, on the land. But that does not mean that you cannot... <laughs> Uh, do those things anywhere. Um, and then there is a question of um, accepting that there is an issue of overall footprint. Um, with the current levels of meat and dairy consumption that we have, and the current level of food waste, and the current levels of burning food and land for energy, there's just not enough planet to go around. So we need to start reducing our demand um, by, by consuming better. You know, um, almost everywhere in Europe, we are eating way more uh, meat and dairy than is even healthy for us. Again, it's not about everybody becoming vegan and about, uh, you know, uh, anathemas against anything. But you just look at, you know, what's the health recommendation and what's the current level of consumption, the, 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 the possibilities of doing a lot better are, are huge. Yeah, but and, even if uh, you look at the, uh, the, that meat, the, the types of meat, most of it is garbage. It's not like a good, most quality, of it is not good quality meat. It's absolutely horrible and it's not even particularly tasty. And quite a lot of it, you would not know the difference if you were eating, you know, between a, a veggie burger and a real burger. Most of them are, you know. Um, so, um, again, uh, we there is a path for eating better food, that is more healthy, that consumes less land, and then we would be releasing the pressure from the land, and that would allow us to have more rewilding and more agroecology and more ecological infrastructure and farmers that are not enslaved to you know, maximizing uh, production um, and it would give us a slack in the system to start and solving some of the problems that we that we need to solve, which is not possible as long as we have those grotesque levels of consumption that we are exporting to all the rest of the world. And if all the world uh, converges on a, on a U.S. or European diet, then we'll just burn down the planet, and there's nothing to do. We're not going to be healthy, that's for sure. Uh, Ariel, we spent a lot of time talking about farming and around farming. I want to touch on another area that is uh, probably very 
interesting to a lot of listeners of my podcast, which is hunting, hunting in Europe. Um, there's an organization that represents hunters uh, face, and they are presenting that on the European level. And m maybe before I we, we go a little bit deeper into that, if hunting in Europe disappeared overnight tomorrow, we wake up tomorrow, there's no hunting in Europe, would the biodiversity and nature situation be better or worse? I must say that on balance, I think it would be better. But uh, but it doesn't make a lot of sense as a question because again, uh, hunting is as diverse as farming. Um, so apart from, I mean, there is an ethical debate about hunting. Um, but if we are talking in terms of environment and conservation, uh, you have you know some of the most biodiversity rich places in Europe are. You know, some Beheza hunting estates in, uh, uh, in Spain where you have imperial eagles and black vultures and lynxes and so on. And, um, and where, you know, a lot of those habitats would not be there if it wasn't because of the hunting estate that is keeping them for hunting. That's at one extreme. At the other extreme, you still have quite a lot of hunters in, the Mediterranean, in France, in other places, who are just blasting out of the sky any migratory bird that uh, flies over them. Oh, really? They are, they are giving absolutely nothing back to the ecosystem, and they are running a purely extractive exercise. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't want to mesh those categories together, again, under some sort of caricature of hunters, and then you become terribly offensive to some people who are not doing anything wrong and might actually be doing some, some very good things. There is no doubt that we have some very serious problems in hunting in Europe. It's a lot better than it used to be, but there are some lingering problems. I mean, we are still campaigning to get rid of lead ammunition, ah. which is which you're, is you you're 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 going ahead of my question because that was so, one of my yeah, questions how this thing go i mean uh we've achieved the ban on uh, lead shot use in wetlands in the eu which comes into force in january but we are still working on a full ban um there is no reason to chuck toxic lead into the environment you know the alternatives are there it's just not understandable that for sport you would poison the environment. By the way, poison yourself and your families when you feed them on the on 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 uh, uh, on, on game uh, meat. We still have in all sorts of places in Europe uh, an unacceptable amount of uh, illegal wildlife persecution of all sorts of types and for all sorts of reasons. And unfortunately, there is still way too much. Um, group solidarity in the hunting world, um, you know, I'm not seeing many uh, people who uh, have been poisoning raptors or shooting protected species uh, being handed over to the police by fellow hunters. It tends to be either environmentalists or animal welfare organizations that run the investigations and so on. Um, and I think, you know, if the hunting community wants to get rid of the kind of bad press that they, that they are getting, the, the surest way of doing it would be to go clean and stop treating the rotten apples within their community as kind of, you know, a dirty secret that is better uh, laundered in the family. 
and start treating them as criminals, uh, which is what which is what they are. Um, and then we still have uh, too many declining and threatened species that are still being hunted in a number of countries. And again, we can have all sorts of debates, species by species, and you know, adaptive harvest and all sorts of things. And we are having those debates. But fundamentally, sustainable hunting is about harvesting the surplus of uh, a population. When a population is plummeting like a storm, as in the case of, uh, you know, uh, Culeus or, 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 or turtle doves, it obviously does not have a surplus. And then, you know, it becomes very difficult to see why would you be hammering a species while, while it goes down. Although, in most cases, those species are declining because of habitats, because of agriculture, not necessarily because of hunting. Uh, but again, I would want to see a lot more hunters kind of, um, you know, uh, spontaneously saying, well, if a species is going down, let's put a moratorium, stop shooting it, invest in habitat restoration, bring it back, and then, okay, we'll go back to shooting it. Way too often, we have this kind of rearguard fights about, yeah, it's declining, but it's not declining that much, or in my area, it's not yet declining, so I should keep shooting it. Which yeah, is but, a but, but you know, it's also like when, you're, when you uh, stop shooting something or you, or you put those, those stops, you're very rarely getting back. Because, uh, and we, we saw the examples uh, from the U.S., um, where there was a agreed, like I think, wolf recovery and some other species, and then you see the recovery exceeding the targets three times, and then it's being challenged. Like, why you want to open season? Uh, it's right. So this know, is, I think, this where people are like, oh, yeah, which is where uh, you know uh, I would welcome the kind of uh, you know proactive attitude of saying, well, you know. We want a management plan where we shut it down and reopen it when it gets to a certain level and decide it upfront. The reality is that very often, you know, those things feed into each other. If we need to campaign for 15 years to uh, give the species a break and, uh, and, and the hunters do everything they can to keep shooting, then once you've closed it, you know, you do not want to spend another 15 years then having to recorrect it. So you then become very, very cautious about reopening. So, um, again, those things are better in some countries and in some regions, and they are worse in other countries and regions. But again, uh, people should, you know, try to solve problems rather yeah. than uh, wish the problems away or and fight with each other. They are not the source of the problem and that the other side is exaggerating and so on because the situation is so serious that... Um, uh, and, and to be honest, I mean, if you look at European hunting, I mean, in more and more parts of Europe, hunters are now reduced into shooting domestic poultry. Which is terribly sad. You know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the son of a hunter. You know, my father is not among us anymore, but in his youth, he was a very, very avid hunter and, um, and hunting with dogs and the whole thing. And I grew up, uh, with all his uh, hunting stories. So I, I fully understand kind of the, 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 the culture of where it comes from and the connection with nature and so on. Where's the connection of nature? Uh, when you shoot factory farmed pheasants that have been released 
in the morning on a sterile maize field. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's no, where I'm, I'm, losing, I'm, I'm losing the plot. But if you look at, uh, you know, what has been happening to hunting uh, in, in Europe is that there is less and less natural game. I mean, that's not the case, of course, with things like wild boar. But if you are looking at, uh, you know, gray partridge, which when my father was young, that was the quarry species that, you know, <laughs> had almost yeah. mytholo- mythological uh uh, status now it's pretty much extinct in in in, in most traditional European uh, hunting regions, and it has been replaced by either you know, factory farmed partridges or factory farmed pheasants, and uh, that's not where where it should be. So we should really, you know, see the farming community working with us on bringing back the flower strips and the hedgerows and the fallows and the ecological infrastructure so that they can then harvest real species that come from from healthy populations yeah and you know like as much as i'm don't don't feel comfortable talking about farming because i'm not a farmer um i i can i can relate to hunting and you know my view on this is that i feel like hunting needs to change in order to survive it's under so much pressure not only from the perspective like there is less and less game species and and you know hunt, like you said those those hunting concessions or hunting estates have a good habitat because they need it to to continue hunting but i also feel like there is kind of like an old guards who are p- pushing the brakes and i i really would welcome like a change in in hunting in order for hunting to be enjoyed for future generations because too often I I feel like it's just no let's keep doing what we're doing is it, it, it like they're they're failing to adapt to changing uh, situation yeah, that's I, my I, view I, on it I think this is true again I wouldn't want to generalize you know hunters there are yeah of, of course and they, right and, and, and they are very different in different places and so on but it is true that in many European countries the number of hunters is going down and their age is going up. And their social license to operate is in many places disappearing. And a lot of it is due to, uh, frankly, the brutality of what some of the uh, hunting uh, uh, federations do. I mean, you look at a place like France, where, you know, uh, joggers or bikers or ladies with prams get killed um, in, in hunting accidents. And the boss of the farm union comes out blaming the victims, saying that they should know how to walk in the countryside and should have informed themselves. That yeah, I heard that. that. It doesn't make you popular. You know, in a society where there are more and more people who take a moral issue with just killing stuff for, for pleasure, and uh, where, you know, the younger generation is much more likely to be preoccupied with things like welfare of animals and the environment and, and where there's more and more people that enjoy the countryside through jogging or hiking or biking or whatever rather than um, uh, by, by hunting, that attitude of the countryside belongs to us the rest of society are all trespassers and we have a God-given right to keep doing what we do because we've always done it. 
eventually, you know, you are ending up in a corner and, um, and, and it's not giving you any future. Yeah. Um, so I, I would certainly want to see, uh, you know, uh, a lot more of the hunting federations getting involved in something like campaigning for the new, uh, EU restoration law and championing flyway uh, level conservation like US hunters have done, uh, you know, with the restoration of breeding grounds in, in Canada and so on, rather than doing all these rear guard battles for getting the extra 10 days of hunting in February or, uh, or being able to shoot for another three years, the declining species before the, 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 yeah. there are none left to shoot or, or, or to oppose, uh, you know, any designation of protected areas because it would take a, a little bit of extra hunting territory out. Um, so uh, again, it's generalizing, but I certainly see way too many uh, kind of rear guard battles for just keeping doing the same for a bit longer and way too little campaigns for actually bringing nature back. Hmm. Right. One last uh, item I have on my list, Ariel, is uh, marine, marine environment. And um, again, I'm going to lead with the with a kind of like a question from where I sit and I do a lot of angling and, you know, hunting and angling is obviously a huge, huge theme um, for me and, and on the podcast. But I feel like out of these areas, kind of like a subject that we discussed so far, that marine is the worst. It's just like, a, it's, it's just my, my feeling. Would you, would you confirm is, is that, is that your feeling as well? That in situation? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's always a question of comparing apples and peers, but, uh, but certainly the, the, the state of the, of the sea is, is, is dreadful. I mean, we've, we've fished out everything, right? I mean, all the big predatory fish are basically gone. Uh, the, the anadromous migratory fish are mostly gone. Um, we are trolling and bottom trolling almost every corner of our seas. Um, uh, you know, the, the kind of, the, the good news is that we have, uh, you know, a bit less overfishing in terms of pure kind of not catching the fish faster than they can reproduce. But in terms of allowing fish to mature and become big and, uh, you know, have their ecological functions, um, you know, we've not been making almost any progress. Uh, there's hardly any real protected areas in Europe. Um, you know, um, marine protection is almost entirely meaningless paper park. So, um, we are in a, in a really, really sad place and other parts of the world, um, like Latin America or even Indonesia are actually doing a lot better than the Europe is doing, which is shameful. Um, uh, yeah, angling, like even anglers, the, the, you know, like, a, I, I even, uh, you know, when I fish in Ireland from 2007, so over this time, I can see in the, like a short time span, the decline in, in catches and fishing, like it's, it's just, it's, it is, it is, it is very sad. And, and if we are talking about seabirds, I mean, a lot of seabirds population are in free fall. We have levels of bycatch that are absolutely horrific. Um, so we have, we have some really, really big problems. And of course, climate change, um, is starting to shake up the whole marine ecosystems and, and unfortunately, those highly degraded ecosystems become then extremely vulnerable 
to invasive species, to changes in ocean currents and, and so on. So the need for ecological restoration is as big at, at sea as it is on land. Um, the good news is that we actually know how to do it. I mean, if you create properly protected areas with at least part of them being off, um, uh, closed off to fishing, uh, marine ecosystem bounce back. And in many cases, very, very rapidly. And we've seen it in very small places around Europe. And we've seen it in giant places like, you know, in, um, the U.S. Uh, Pacific um, uh, re- protected area, or Polynesia in other places. So we know how to bring back nature. And the good news there is that actually in most cases uh, you end up fishing more if you stop fishing in, in some places. Again, there is always the issue of how do you help a community because when you close an area to fishing, you lose the fishing ground for a number of years and it takes time before the fish population uh, builds up and you get the reserve effect and the spillover and so on. Uh, but again, I mean, our policies should be about working with um, with uh, fishing communities to restore marine environments. Um, today, a lot of the policies are captured by the big uh fishing uh industrial fishing interests well using the small fishermen as a poster boy for keeping pillaging the sea um and um Do you know this is the same like similar what you said about farming that is the it's big, very big, similar. big, big it's industry very very similar i mean you look at who europesh uh is defending it's certainly not the small artisanal yeah. Fading uh, fishermen. It is the you know, big entrepreneurs that, uh, yeah. that have. The, the, the but even if you talk with 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 fishermen, like I had a, a f- commercial fisherman on a podcast more than one occasion, uh, and we were talking about you know like a hot subjects like you know seals and whether seals are impacting fishing and whatever. And after a while, they're saying themselves like the problems are the big boats, how they call them. The big boats are the problem, and well, that's, then that's, like if fishing quotas are. Uh, as like something that I have like a personally, I I just can't understand that like fishing quotas are are year after year after year set above the scientific recommendations, and then you hear that the eighty or ninety percent like in case of Ireland, eighty or ninety percent of that quota is assigned to like f- four boats, the biggest I mean, boats, the, and the rest the is honest, for the, the entire country. Like how honest, does that work? Well, the system is profoundly corrupt. I mean. I'm afraid that that's down to that. I mean, some of that corruption is legal and some of it is not. But uh, but uh, it is very clear that there are a few people who are making a lot of money and part of that money is being recycled back into the political system to make sure that the political system keeps looking after the interests of those that make the money. And the majority of society loses out and nature loses out and and you can see you know um you know uh, if you look at um uh, you know, in our work now on the on the eu restoration law we've been looking at uh, a lot of uh, good case studies from around europe including from outside the eu and you have for example um a, a fantastic example actually from turkey where they have created a protected area with the local fishing communities kicked out the big industrial trawlers and created some 
integral reserves where there is no fishing. And the local uh, fishermen have seen uh, the revenue increase by more than fourfold since the protected area has been created. So protected areas are good for fishermen. The problem is that, again, you get, you know, the, the, the big, <laughs> the big players who just want to, you know, catch all the fish because then they move to another place. They go fishing in the Pacific. So they deplete one fish stock after another, after another. And they are running a purely extractive type of industry. They do not want any limits to that sort of extractive industry. But then they kind of use as a front the local community, the tradition, the small operators, and so on and so forth. And very often you get this kind of, again, partly the, the, the culture wars, partially the sense of identity, uh, partially just disinformation um, and, uh, and so on, partially the fears of people, uh, fears that can also be uh, understandable because, you know, uh, very often what the small guy thinks is they are going to create a protected area. Well, they are not going to take away the, the, the big boys, uh, uh, you know, fishing opportunities. So at the end, it will be me paying for it. So I say no. And so, uh, you know, that's the kind of, uh, problems that we face. But those are, those are problems that we face in, 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 you know, uh, certainly in all the primary sector, um, uh, so whether it's agriculture, fishing, forestry, um, but you actually have similar uh, issues um, around other environmental problems, uh, you know, mobility, energy, and so on. Um, very often the, the, the ecological shift that we need to do uh, has a few big losers and a lot of small winners and that means that, first of all, the losers are a lot more powerful than the winners. And also in the nature of change, the losers know they will lose and they are ready to fight to death not to lose. The winners, in many cases, don't even know they would be winners because it doesn't exist yet. I mean, this is the same uh, in, um, think about the, the energy transition. I mean, we are starting now to actually have a renewables lobby. But for 30 years... You know, the lobby was coal and oil and gas, and they knew that moving to renewables would be a loss for them. Uh, we knew all along that there would be huge amount of jobs and innovation and startups in kind of smart energy and innovation and insulating buildings. But, you know... Uh, a lot of that industry didn't exist, so it also didn't have <laughs> a lobby, a lobby fighting for it. And still today, uh, you can see that, you know, oil companies have a giant lobby machine. Uh, wind farms, solar start having a bit of their own lobby machine. The people fitting double glazing or heat pumps don't yet exist on the lobby, uh, um, arena because in many cases they are tiny SMEs. They are a kind of uh, father and son operations that cannot compete with the big entrenched um, uh, power. So th those are dynamics that you find all around. Yeah. Ariel, on the, on the marine, one last question. Like where, where does the recreational anglers 
sit in that in that whole spectrum because i feel like the these are really people who are seeing like i see and a lot of my friends see the decline and um uh i was talking with people who work for angling trust uh, a couple of years ago and they they were saying that they were actually not recognized at all at the eu level has anything changed do you do you see any changes and do you see the benefit or reasons well, for so, recreational angling being so again the the anglers community again is very different and there are huge differences so there are countries where uh, you know our organizations are working actually closely with the anglers on things like river restoration and taking out barriers and and opposing uh, water pollution and so on you have other places in europe where you still have people just you know catching the last big fish and, uh, you know, um, uh, and, 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 um, uh, and you can do damage. I mean, if you look at, uh, like, uh, you know, groupers and uh, this kind of big fish in places like the Mediterranean, in many cases, they've been, uh, uh, fished out not by industrial operations, but by people, you know, having fun with the, you know, the, um, scuba fishing and, and so on. So, um, so you have responsible people and non-responsible people and people that are really trying to, you know, uh, tackle the environmental um, problem and in other places you have people that keep having a go at cormorants because cormorants are the evil that eats all the fish and uh, which in many cases you know it's kind of um, you end up with these surreal debates where you have rivers that have been completely rectified and covered in concrete and with the dam every few kilometers and in the summer they don't even have water uh, and they are full of shit and then it's the cormorant's fault <laughs> that they don't have fish. So, um, so again, it's another community uh, where there is a huge need for people, uh, for the more progressive and intelligent people to get organized and speak up and speak up on what matters, which is having healthy seas and healthy, uh, healthy rivers. Yeah, you know, Ariel, this is fantastic because you have a, such a broad view on all those things on the European level. And sometimes where I said like, oh, this is like, all good guys, and then you give example with the groupers in Mediterranean, which I didn't know that they were uh, hammered by uh, sport fishers. Um, listen, how do you how do you keep sane fighting that big machine? Because the picture that you laid out to us is pretty grim. Like you like you said at the beginning of the of the, of the show, how do you keep you know where do you get get an energy to keep doing what you're doing? Well, uh, I think that like everyone in the bird life family, uh, it's ultimately the love of nature. You know, when you go out there and you see birds, uh, it gives you a huge, uh, emotional, spiritual, uh, satisfaction. And, um, and, uh, there is a lot of beauty in nature and I don't want to see that beauty lost. And, uh, I think that, you know, as long as we have a possibility to fight for the survival of nature, um, we should do it. And it gives actually a huge, uh, a huge reward. I mean, I would just hate, uh, sitting back and watching all these wonderful products of millions of years of evolution, uh, vanishing in front of my eyes. How do you see future played out? Do you think? Do you? Do you? Do you are you? Are you a, a little bit optimistic, or you just think that we're gonna lose so much and it's only going one way? It's not looking good. 
it's not looking good. Uh, I think we are still in time to avoid a lot of the damage. Some damage is already locked in, um, particularly around around climate change. Uh, you know, even if we started tomorrow morning doing everything right, some species, some habitats, some landscapes are are already doomed. But uh, but I'm convinced that there is a lot that we can save. I'm convinced that we can still avoid the complete collapse of the type that, you know, the kind of mass, mass extinction uh, situation where the whole biosphere caves in and it takes you five million years to, to, go, to go back to having a, a functioning ecosystem. Um, unfortunately, the window of opportunity is, is, is closing. It keeps closing. But we are still in time. And, um, and in any case, uh, you know, uh, no matter uh, what's the probability, I think that the moral imperative is to try and uh, and avoid the catastrophe. Absolutely. So, um, in a sense, whether you are an optimist or a pessimist, shouldn't really matter. Uh, you should do what's right and ethical in any case. That's a great answer. I never got that answer for my question, pessimist, optimist. What people who are concerned about nature and want to... Uh, influence nature restoration, what is the best way for them to do? What should they do? What would you advise? Campaign, put pressure on politicians. I mean, there's all sorts of things that you can do. I mean, obviously, anything from being a member of an environmental NGO that you believe in or volunteering on your local reserve. If you own a piece of land, even a balcony, you can bring a little bit of nature to it. You can talk to people. You can change your consumption. You can do all sorts of things. But the one thing that ultimately will save or doom nature is politics, is what governments do. Um, and governments, at least in places that are still somehow democratic, uh, do what citizens want them to do. Uh, yes, they can be corrupted by money. Yes, they can be in hock to all sorts of powers. But ultimately, if enough people want to see change, change will happen. So, uh, so people should, uh, should uh, vote for, for nature-friendly politicians and vote out destructive politicians. And they should let the politician know that they are caring about nature because ultimately, depending on your political system, you might have a choice between one two parties or 15 parties, but it's a package. So you need to speak up in face-to-face -face meetings, on social media, in writing to your elected officials, demonstrate. You know, there are many ways of doing it, um, but you need to let the people who governs you know that you want nature back. Ariel, that's a very strong and very smart message. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 